Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. All right. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 7 of Top of Mind with Concilia Wealth. We are back again to uh, follow up on our listener question uh, rather a question that I po- la- posed last time, which was, where are you feeling inflation? We got a couple of responses there. So thanks for that. Uh, I had a question at the end. We were talking about new car sales and used car sales. And um, I was wondering if people are migrating from new cars to used cars, uh, maybe because they can't get a new car or uh, that new cars are so expensive. And so we've got some data on that to follow up. And uh, and then just a, a, a litany of market data has come out in the last two weeks. Markets have been incredibly volatile, as I'm sure everyone has noticed. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we have some data to discuss current market dynamics. Uh, there's actually a lot of money on the sidelines and just some other really interesting things going on uh, that we thought we would point out. So with those, call it three things, that'll probably take us to the balance of our podcast today. Hal, turn it over to you. How are things? How are, how are you today? As of right now, we got a good jobs report. And uh, most most of the jobs were added in leisure and hospitality. Uh, those, those industries have not reached their previous hiring, hiring levels. So it kind of makes sense that most jobs added to this economy are in hotels, restaurants, service work. Mm-hmm which is actually encouraging to see as we reopen or have been reopened, we're just able to handle more of more of that shifting demand from goods back to services. So, but with that good news, the market sees that as the fed, you know, has a permission to uh, for another jumbo rate Ike. So yeah. we, we, we were hoping, and again, that, that, that hopeful day will come with a massive, massive rally, I believe, where if the Fed suddenly says we're done hiking, what do you think the market's going to do? Interest rates right? go down, market goes up. Yeah. So mm-hmm. today, um, unemployment drip, dropped down from 3.7 to 3.5. We added 263,000 jobs. And again, they, they are on the, I guess, the lower end of the spectrum in terms of uh, – uh, salary and wage, but again, those 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 workers, everyone realized how how valuable they are. So, so I think the couple things that the Fed's watching is wage growth, right? And there's this this idea that the higher the wages, the the higher inflation will be, which kind of on the surface kind of makes sense, right? We'll mm-hmm. we'll dig into the data why we a little bit leery about that. Um, but with such a strong jobs number, that's the exact thing that the Fed's trying to limit, right? The natural rate of unemployment is 5%. We, we are actually taking down in the opposite direction where 3.5% is unnaturally low. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that the Fed's watching. And if they do another 0.75% increase, 
versus a 0.5, right? I think the market would cheer the 0.5 like mm-hmm. very heartily. But today, the odds of a jumbo hike on the table for November uh, just went up. So right. we'll have to we'll have to see um, one more CPI and one more PCE reading. Hopefully, those two, one of those two come down. Specifically, the the PCE needs to come down. Um, yeah, for everyone's reference, we touched on this last time. PCE is a personal consumption expenditure. That's registering at four point four. So let's get the idea of we need ten percent interest rates to to tame inflation. We're watching PCE inflation at four point four. If you want to match that, you know you need a four point five, four point two five. And that mm-hmm. that like CPI has been coming down, so mm-hmm. we're ready. We're closer to the end than a lot of what a lot of people are feeling, especially after today. Uh, I'm looking at the market; uh, the S and P is down two and a half percent mid morning, and it's because of the jobs report, and it's because of interest rates. Okay, so many things going through my head there. I just want to touch on a few things that you said. So, um, jobs report was good. Markets are down. And so I just wanted to to restate that. The reason is because that essentially confirms the Fed's path. They have to keep raising rates um, in order to tame jobs. So there's really two things that they're trying to do. They're trying to pull inflation down and they're trying to cool the job market because one of the reasons why inflation is seemingly sticky is because the job market is so good. Um, uh, That's also one of the reasons why when we hit what we uh, what some would have called a recession months ago, uh, yeah. then some came out and said, no, we didn't because the job market is still really, really strong. Yeah. Um, and so again, good jobs is actually bad news because it means interest rates may actually have to go higher before the fed's done, uh, with their, with their work. The other piece that I think is interesting here though, um, uh, new job postings have declined. And so it's starting to work. So this is not all bad news. And remember, anytime these numbers come out, this is lagging data. Um, So I just pulled this up. This this article came out from October 4th. So just Tuesday of this week, US job openings post biggest drop in nearly two and a half years. That is good news. Good news, good news, good news. Um, so just, just commenting that things are actually going the right direction. You want job openings to go down in this time, um, because that means that we can get through this hopefully faster. Yeah. Let's be real here. People getting jobs is good news in the real world. So yeah, we'll, we'll kind of go back and forth between investment world and real world. This is great news for anyone who's picked up a job. It's great news for anyone who's looking to go to Disneyland or to a restaurant. I think the service should should turn around and get better for everyone. I think those are positives. Um, it's just the market cues off of interest rates, and interest rates are the biggest focus right now. And if anything, it's temporary paper losses here because the Fed will pause, right? They'll, they'll get rates to where they want them. And once they do, I think that's great news. And I, I think investors should be prepared and stayed invested through the turmoil because, yeah, I think we, we've seen the biggest rebounds consistently around nearly the day after, right? Like the, the when we have big sell-offs, the, rebit, the sharpest rebounds are like the next day. And how yeah, do you time that? Let's chat about that for a little bit. So there's so much data on this. And uh, uh, I just wanted to highlight it once again. So 
number one, buying and holding is a good way to make money consistently. And we have to be okay with a handful of pullbacks on a periodic basis. Um, you know, the market will pull back 5% multiple times in a year, 10%, uh, 15% uh, every year, 20% uh, every couple of years. And so this is actually very, very normal what we're in right now. Uh, and if you look at forward-looking returns, once a market is off its prior high by 25%, they're very, very strong. Uh, and so that's, again, this is all good news in the face of, of bad news. Uh, I've touched on this in previous podcasts. I wanted to highlight uh, a 15-year period. Previously, I touched on a 20-year period. So just some, some data from uh, 2006. So end of year 2006, 1231, 2006 to 1231, 2021. So end of this last year. Um, if you bought the S&P and you closed your eyes that entire time, so that's a 15-year period, you would have gotten a roughly a 10.5% rate of return during that time. Now, let me just read off a couple of highlights you from the You said 2006, awesome right? That uh, includes like the crash. Yeah, yeah, that included the, the housing crash. So October of 07 was the prior high. Yeah. Right. And so, you still got a what? 10% you said? 10 and a half, 10.66 to be exact. That's yeah. That's actually, that surprises me too. Cause you would have thought, cause uh, what 2008 was a 63% drop. And the market didn't, right? Exactly. I mean, and so think about it this way too. You were investing in the face of amazing news. Like you probably were out. I'm saying you as the general, right? Uh, yeah. You might've yeah. been on the sidelines you know, going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then finally, 2006 rolls around Christmas time and you're thinking, all right, fine, I got to get in. I've got some major FOMO. I got to get in. And then the market ends up peaking October of the next year. So 10 months later, and you're thinking for 10 months, I've, I've rocked it. And then it goes straight down for the next like 15 to March 9th, 2009. And then you're going, why did I do this? Anyway, if you stayed in and you just didn't see anything, you know, didn't change anything, you're in 10 and a half percent. Let me read a few from the highlight reel here. Uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers happened in September of 2008. Remember, you invested 1231, 2006. You're going, I'm never doing this again, right? Uh, that triggered, obviously, a severe downturn. But within a year of September of 2008, remember the bottom was March of 09, March 9th, 09. Uh, and then the recovery, markets had come back significantly. 2011, markets declined significantly in 2011. Remember when the S&P came out, S&P, the Standard & Poor's ratings company, they downgraded U.S. debt. That was a big deal. Markets fell, markets rallied back. 2016, st U.S. stocks plummeted more than 5% two days after the Brexit happened. And uh, all of that was followed by a dramatic three-day recovery. All was fine. And then uh, finally, in the fourth quarter of 2018, the S&P tumbled more than 10% on fears of a Fed policy error and a U.S.-China trade war in the fourth quarter of 2018. And uh, all of that was erased and recovered by uh, the first quarter of 2019. So in sum, in sum, the best days often follow the worst days. Uh, the, the it, it's almost like more more bad news you should invest a um, couple of fun facts march of 2020 yep. the second worst day of the year was uh thursday march 12th down nine and a half percent the fourth best day of the year up 9.3 percent uh that was the fourth best day in 20 years friday the 13th um 
from January 3rd of 2000 to April 19th of 2020. So now I'm giving you a 20 year period. Six of the seven best days occurred immediately after the worst day. So in the last 20 years, six of the seven best days occurred immediately after the worst day. Seven of the 10 worst days were followed the next day by either top 10 returns over the 20 years or top 10 returns in their respective years. Bottom line is when markets get really, really volatile, like they have been, we have to stay in because we can't afford to miss the jump. The jump is what creates all this return. Let me wrap this up by tying all this together. If you stayed invested what's, the whole time, again, what's causing 15 the years between 2006 and 2021, you're in 10 and a half percent. If you miss the 10 best days over that 15 year period, you only earned 5%, half. If you miss the 20 best days, you earn 1.59% over 15 years. If you miss the 30 best days, you lost money, you lost 1%. And if you miss the 40 best days, you lost 3.58%. So the cost of being out is so, so, so much greater than the temporary volatility of being in. But you do have less stress, right? You're seeing your portfolio fluctuate a lot less, <laughs> but uh, I think that's just time you don't get back though. That's the biggest issue. I would, I would almost, I mean, I'm just thinking back to this five to nine conundrum that I've put myself through, right? And I almost think just being in is less stressful. Now, let me take a step back. I'm a financial planner, right? So my brain goes to, we're going to diversify. We're going to buy a broad basket of stuff. And I know I'm going to be okay in, in any environment with that. If I get in a little bit high, if I get in a little bit, you know, lucky and get in a lot, fine, whatever. So my brain almost goes to being on the sidelines is the more stressful thing because yeah. being in, I, I know I, you know, I'm, I probably won't touch, you know, hit the bottom, but I still will get a, get a good long-term rate of return. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think uh, being gluttons for punishment, we do see downturns as an optimistic thing because valuations, right? We're buying something cheaper. I, I don't think you get more simpler than that. And if you look at the the chart of, we, we have a chart going back to 1928 and the biggest updates um, occurred in bear markets about, about um, percentage of gainers. It's about 60% gainers in bear markets, meaning most of the returns are coming from the worst periods to invest, like mm -hmm. bear markets, right? With 20% or less drawdown in the S&P, that's a bear market. And those those typically last, what, a year and a half to two years. Mm -hmm. And again, it really depends on which type of bear market we're looking at, right? So um, if you don't mind, I would just want to go over three types, right? Sure. I think, I think structural is the scariest one. Um, structural means something's broken in the financial system and those typically last the longest by far. Uh, think about 2008. That's, that was a structural break, right? Too many, too many home buyers picking up bad loans that they couldn't pay, right? That, that took us 
three three years to recover from that from from peak to trough but you think about the trough though those are the best times to buy and invest because that recovery is gains right and for, for us to reach our january highs of this year we're looking at what 32 percent recovery do you want to miss that and you know it's going to go back yeah let's say Again, I'm just throwing out a number. Let's say 10% of that recovery is happening this year. Again, I'm not saying that's going to, we're going to have a positive year. Who knows? But 10% gains from where we are on our way to march back towards recovery, that's, that's still performance, right? That we're missing out on. So, structural bear markets, yes, we want to avoid. We don't think we're in one. The, the second one is exogenous, meaning there's an outside force really hitting us. Think of wars, think of uh, geopolitical tension, think of pandemics. Hmm. How fast was 2020? Right, we recovered- Two weeks. <laughs> I feel like two weeks, right? I think it was two weeks, we, right? Two weeks down we officially, and six weeks up, I think, something like that. Yeah, so uh, the, the actual dates were like March 23rd was the bottom. And it was like August 5th was like the previous high. So we not only met the bottom, but by August, we met the February highs of, mm -hmm. you know, 2020. So again, I, I knew plenty of people on the sidelines for that. And you can't make up for that lost time. The market's not going to give you another discount just because you felt like it, right? That, mm -hmm. That's That's the problem is... Uh, unfortunately, you, have, you do have to ride the downs for that that big payoff. It's called investing, right? It's part of the game. We have <laughs> yeah, to tolerate part of the game, it. right? Yeah. And the last part will, would be cyclical. So I w went through structural and exogenous. We're in, kind of past both. Um, this one's cyclical, meaning uh, the Fed typically has to raise rates when they believe the economy is running too hot to keep inflation in line. Um, you mentioned 2018 was a um, potential policy mistake. I think a policy mistake was keeping rates low and not hiking rates higher than they did because I think the inflation that we're feeling now is a combination of the pandemic but also the loose money policies we've experienced since, what, 2009? Mm -hmm. And that's all coming to roost now. But the thing that makes this cyclical is they'll raise rates and then they'll cut rates. They, it's always like a rate hiking cycle, then a, then a lowering of rates, and that spurs another new bull market. And those those are not as quick as exogenous, right? The the recoveries aren't as quick, but they're not as long and as painful as the structural bear markets. So somewhere in between, but I think it's it's healthy. I think it's something that markets need. How many people did you see trading NFTs and making millions of dollars off of that, like, or crypto or things that just don't hold any valuable value? I think that just shows so, so much speculation was being built in to our system. It did need to get shaken out. And yeah, we had to experience inflation to, to kind of run through this. But I think this, I'd argue that we needed rate hikes back in 2018, right? And if we didn't have the, the pandemic, we probably would have seen not as high inflation because we think it's supply 
driven, mm -hmm. but I think we would have seen higher than 2% inflation. Well, and I think that the, the Fed was gearing up to start raising rates in, in yeah. 20 and then, you know, pandemic hits late 19, March of 20, things started to come down and, and, you know, now here we are, right. Ended up going the other direction and pumping money into the economy. So not just the Fed though, too. Yeah. That stimulus was the, the stimulus, part, the government. Yeah. 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 Which California is now sending out checks, but anyway, that's, that's a conversation <laughs> yeah. for another podcast. Divide inflation, right? Yeah, Which is so inflation, right? That makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's well, anyway. Um, I think that it's, it's interesting that markets are so volatile right now as well. So here's, here's a fun fact. Um, the, between 2013, 2019, there were fewer than four days in every year that the market moved more than 2%. And in 2022, we've got 14 of them so far. Um, that's crazy. And it's essentially, you know, the, the, we talk about this a lot here, but the market tries to price things in. So a lot of the stuff, how that you just said, you know, the market tries to price in, what are we going through now economically, jobs wise, interest rates wise, um, other events that are, that are, you know, potential things that could derail markets. Uh, and it tries to press all that in. And you can just see with the volatility of how markets are going up and down this year, how difficult it's been to predict what the Fed's going to do, what the inflation numbers are going to be, what jobs numbers are going to come out. I mean, everybody thought it would come down by now and it, and it hasn't. So, um, interesting and related and, uh, you know, I think we just need time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, we, we talked about what, um, is causing these massive bounce off severe down days. Right. And I think it helps to understand the mechanics of trading. Right. Um, let's just be blunt and say, sometimes there's more sellers than buyers mm -hmm. and then the news media will say, well, the selling was caused because of X and selling buying was caused because of Y. Right. And the market's going to move the way the market's going to move. And if Bloomberg didn't exist or CNBC didn't exist, do the markets exist? Yeah, of course. Right. Though they're just trying to stamp some kind of label on it, right? Inflation where the jobs number caused a sell-off. But if you understand the mechanics of what's going on, right? Why we get such powerful bounces right off lows. Think about short sellers. Think about who's profited from this, right? Their job is to, you know, sell high and buy low. And I'm specifically saying sell high first, right? Uh, a traditional investor who's buying low and selling high does it in that order. I'm buying a stock, let's say the S&P, and my hope is to sell it higher at a at a later date. Mm -hmm. Short sellers are different where they're, they go in and sell something that they believe is overpriced, mm -hmm. overvalued, right? How they do that is they borrow shares from someone like me or you who it's called securities lending. And if it's a dividend paying stock they're for the right to borrow those shares to sell, right? Short sell, they're, they're going to have to pay me uh, a fee and the dividends that, that the stock pays, if mm -hmm. it pays a dividend, mm -hmm. right? So, so everyone suddenly became a short sale uh, expert, everyone meaning retail traders, right? During the GameStop and AMC trading days. Mm -hmm. um, but how it works is, if I'm a short seller, I go to Chris and say, hey, can I borrow your S&P 
and let's say it's trading at $500 a share, right? My hope is since I'm borrowing the shares, I have to return them eventually. And since I'm selling short, that means I could close my position by buying. So the idea is if I'm buying Chris's or borrowing Chris's S&P shares for $500 a share, I hopefully buy them for $400 a share so I could return those shares back to him, right. netting a $100 profit. Right. But the key is buying. So if I made money off of a market crash, what am I doing? I'm taking profits. And I take profits in this scenario by buying stock. So you think about it. If I'm the first person to act, let's say it was Monday, October the 3rd, right? We had two big updates on Monday and Tuesday. And if I'm closing my position, I'm buying stock. And if I'm buying stock, I'm putting upward pressure on the market. It means the market's going up. But what does that do to the next short seller? They have to close their positions too if they want to lock in profits. Well, if and the stock so on starts so going up, so forth. that short seller yes. might start sweating a little bit, right? Yes. Like, hey, I got it. Yeah. yeah. And anyone who wants to close out the position and still make a profit, again, short sellers will make profits while the market's still low, right? So they're they're going to scramble to close out positions by buying as low as they can. But that buying pressure puts upward performance on the market. That's, that's not often a coincidence. What, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. But I was just going to say often what causes that is uh, – it's what's referred to as a short squeeze rally and yeah. a short squeeze rally is people that are short the stock, which is again, people that are betting on it going down. If buyers come in and start buying and that stock then goes up, that causes these people who are betting on the stock to go down to sometimes cover those positions, which means buy those shares back. So to house point, it's like double buying. You've got regular people buying, betting on the upside likely because the stock has fallen to a level where they want to buy or the market is. And then you've got these short sellers that might be at a loss or they might see the stock jumps at 5% or something off some, you know, it's low. And so like, Hey, I'm going to cover my position and take my profits. That sense of that double buying is why things skyrocket so far. It's actually the textbook reason of what you've seen happen with GameStop and AMC and a lot of these, these companies um, these are companies that have very, very large short positions. You can actually look up short interest on stocks and you can see how many days it takes to cover. Uh, it's per the volume of the stock or just how many shares are traded each day. And uh, you can then sort of estimate from that if a short squeeze rally were to happen, how big a stock would jump because so many shares have to trade hands in order to close out all those short positions. That's why these stocks have been targeted as meme stocks because they have very high bets on the downside, short, short squeezes, uh, and low volume. And so when everybody on Wall Street bets goes and buys them, that creates all this upward buying pressure, uh, which, which causes the stock to skyrocket. So anyway, that's kind of the mechanics on how that works. But that's why markets can be so volatile to the upside, uh, because it's like double buying when these shorts are, are being closed. I think if we wanted to really simplify everything, uh, in those days, there's simply more buyers than sellers. Mm -hmm. And if, if you think about um, trading that way, that's 
that's probably the best way to think about it mm -hmm. and strip out all the headlines because you're not gonna you're not gonna have a reasonable explanation when millions of people are trading in and out in different time zones for different reasons, right? And yeah, we explain short sellers. It's not going to be the case every time, but that's a big reason why we get these these uh, post drawdown rallies, right? Massive sell off and then massive rally. It's because a lot of people are taking profits. And but that's part of it. That's only one part of it. You have some interesting stuff in here. So let's let's shift here for a minute. Um, you have some interesting stuff in here on money on the sidelines, which has never been higher. Uh, that also could create additional buying pressure when that money comes back in. Let's talk through this here. Um, money on the sidelines, dollar strengthening and whatnot. What do, you, what do you've got here? The dollar strengthening just means um, relative to other currencies, let's say the euro or the pound, where if, if you're going to travel to Europe, you could probably get quite a few deals, right? Because um, the dollar is going a lot further than it has in the last 40 years, right? Um, Typically, it would cost a U.S. traveler a dollar fifty for every single euro since the 1980s. Now it's like one for one, which is it's been a long time since that's happened. Uh, the pound too, where the pound was nearly two to one against the dollar, where it'd be so expensive for you to spend out there. Mm -hmm. um, now it's one one for one as well. So what's happening is not just U.S. investors, but international investors are taking the risk assets off and they're finding a safe haven. And where else are you going to go in the world? Are you going to park your money in Japanese yen or Chinese yuan or the Australian dollar? Well, one, there's not enough of those currencies to go around to invest a safe haven at. It's going to the U.S. dollar in the form of U.S. debt, treasuries, T-bills, T-notes, uh, anything dollar denominated because there's relative safety to other currencies, right? Because would you, would you really want to own the Rand or, or the Euro at this point? Right. And think of it from a point of view of a European investor, you're, you're going to us. So that has quite a few ramifications where this coil spring effect is building, right? Uh, traditionally we have about $3 trillion in, in um, money market funds, I mean, historically, and right now it's $5 trillion. And not to say all of it's going to go back and do investments, but a significant amount is going to come back in. I, I would estimate $1.2 trillion is, would have to come back in in bond investing or stock investing where that money in the silence previously wasn't earning anything, but you could probably get, what, 2.5% off a of money market? stable value fund, yeah. which is pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. And you think about these ramifications of a strengthening dollar. One, our imports are cheaper because if I'm buying stuff from China, their, their, their currency is weak. So I can buy more with the same amount of U.S. dollars. On the flip side, though, if I have sales overseas, let's say I'm Apple, I'm selling iPhones in Ireland, they're... I have to translate that money back, meaning I'm selling in, in pounds. I think Ireland uses pounds. Um, and I have to translate that back to us. So previously I thought I would get a two to one conversion. Now it's one to one. So I'm actually effectively losing money 
if I'm comparing it to a historical sense in, in Apple's point of view, right? Uh, at the same time, I'm paying salaries and wages in euros and pounds. So there's kind of an offset, but it's not good to have a persistently high or strong dollar, right? And I know prior to heading into this, everyone's like, well, the dollar is going to lose out to Bitcoin or gold. Well, how's gold doing? How's Bitcoin doing this year? Like those, nothing has beaten King dollar. And this has another effect on crude oil, where if I'm in Malaysia or India, oil is pegged to the dollar. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that. So I have to convert, you know, Indian currency or Malaysian currency into US dollars to to purchase my oil. If it if it's more expensive for me because the dollar's so strong, oil right now is ninety two dollars a barrel. But translate that to the Canadian dollar, to the Australian dollar. If I'm an Aussie, I have to pay more, even though mine mine in your eyes, Chris, right, we're Americans, we're seeing ninety two dollars. We're not feeling the impact of of a currency mm -hmm. uh, depreciation. So that that's quite a few things that will <clears throat> harm manufacturing, especially in India, right? They, they do need oil to produce and they export goods to us. So on the back end or the front end, it's going to be cheaper to import from India. But on the back end, it's more expensive to produce those goods in, in India because oil hasn't really crashed worldwide. It's just because the dollar has gotten stronger. So we might have experienced cheaper gas prices at the pumps because our our dollar goes further. Oh, but, I see what you're saying. Oil but, prices are yeah, up but if, likely because of Russia, Ukraine. Uh, yeah. But they've been mitigated in the U.S. more than other countries because, because of the currency. Of the dollar. Yeah. And that doesn't – because the U.S. is a net exporter of oil these days. So a lot of our oil is, you know, homegrown, if you, as it were. So that doesn't have an impact. In terms of producing our like domestic we produce oil? a lot of our own domestic oil yeah. right so uh i would think that that's um if we are buying oil from uh, a foreign country with our strong dollar that benefits us as americans because we have the strong dollar but because we're producing a lot in inside of the country we're not buying it so the dollar doesn't have an, a, a, the same effect on the price from from our point of view it won't yeah because to, to me and you, a dollar is a dollar because yeah. we spend our money here in the States, right? Yeah, yeah. The biggest effect would be if I'm a Canadian buying U.S. gas, the translation effect is so much higher because you you yeah. have to exchange the currency. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I know it went pretty complicated there, but it helps to understand the oil trade. Aren't we just setting so, ourselves up for... With a strong dollar, we've got products coming in. The U.S. is a net importer of goods. So we've got products coming in that should have lower prices because of the strong dollar. Uh, exactly. It looks like the job market is starting to turn. Yes, I know we opened the podcast saying you know, it came stronger than, than it was, but it seems like it's starting to actually go the right direction, i.e. cool off. Uh, inflation and other commodities numbers is, is getting significantly better. Uh, you know, Quick quote. The cost to ship from China to the U.S. is down like 95 percent. Um, mm -hmm. It was in last September. It was twenty thousand five hundred eighty-six dollars to get a shipping container across the Pacific Ocean. 
beginning of this year, 13,706, and now it's only $2,265. Uh, that's significant, right? So a lot of these things are pointing in the right direction. So aren't we just setting ourselves up to see inflation just drop like a rock here pretty soon? Or what are your thoughts on that? At least in the uh, US. Yes, and that's the key. Uh, we are hmm. Federal Reserve relative to other reserve banks have been more aggressive in hiking rates. That's the, the simplest answer of why the dollar has gotten so strong. It's why the UN is, it. the, the United Nations is interjecting with our monetary policy and saying, why don't you guys uh, chill out with the, the rate hikes? Cause you guys are absolutely destroying other economies. And we're, we're <laughs> seeing it in the headlines, right? And look at, look at what happens in, in England, right? Um, they had pension funds who were on the brink of collapse, right? And if a pension fund collapses, that's that's impacting millions of people. And I think I think by us hiking the way we are has a lot of unintended consequences, similar to what um, you know lowering rates the way we have have. We're dealing with those consequences now. So the Fed, this was what we're describing as a a policy mistake by the Fed. And if they keep hiking rates, not only are you impacting the U.S. economy, you are impacting the global economy in a big, big way. Hmm. Interesting. I'm excited for the next couple of months of, of data to come out. You know, hopefully we see inflation come down. Um, hopefully we can see some, some better news, meaning cooling off news in the economy, which means the Fed can signal, hey, we're not going to still go up so fast. The markets can rally a little bit off their lows. You know, I, we said last time that markets have never closed the year at their low. Um, hopefully we cannot break that record this year, right? Remains to be seen, but hopefully on 1231, you know, could be, could be lower than it is today before we get there, but hopefully it doesn't close at the low, meaning there's signs of there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I think markets will be quick to react when those signs start happening. Um, just like the, the rally, you know, a couple of months ago when it, it jumped 10% in, in, in a, a month or two. Um, let's end where we started. Um, we haven't answered the car question yet. So uh, last time we talked about the amount of cars sold and it normally is around 17 million a year. And uh, how had said last time it was about 13 million at the time. So well below the, the typical average. And um that is actually a, a number of all cars. We said last time it was new cars. That's all cars. Um, used car sales dominate that number. Yeah. Um, it is It is 80 to 90%. Yeah, you have some numbers on that? Yeah, yeah. So to clarify, this 17 million cars, that's total cars that we normally sell year in, year out. Um, in this environment, we're, we're forecasted to sell about 13 million cars. So the argument back on the last episode was um, we don't have this outsized demand for cars that we can point reasonably point to. It's just, we're selling a lot less cars simply because we have a supply issue and new cars right now uh, up through September, we're about a million cars short of what we would normally sell last, just last year. So not only have mm -hmm. things gotten as, um, Car companies blame semiconductor chips, but we're, we're getting reports from Samsung, AMD, chip makers. The demand has cratered, right? So what's the car company's issue here? 
right? And I think um, I think they're just unfortunately not very well run, and they just don't have the ability to really deal with the um, the adjustment from like just in time uh, production, right? And and I think in a post pandemic world, I just think they're not not doing a good job adapting to to this right now. And I think we're, we're quite a, a few years away from like a full, fully normalized automotive industry. Okay. And then the, uh, the first thing that we started with, so where are you feeling inflation? And uh, it seems like the top three things were kind of the most obvious things, the pump, the store, and a little bit of travel. So like air travel, uh, I think is what people were saying there. So I've definitely noticed that the store uh, organic cauliflower is four ninety nine. It's crazy. I don't know what it was before, but it was not that. Uh, and so, um, th th those seem to be the top, the top three areas that people are, are feeling inflation. All right. That is all the time we have for today. So we will catch up again here in a couple of weeks with an update.